Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Well, for those of you who don't know me, I see some new faces in here. I am Lisa Elmers. I am the formation pastor, and I'm so excited to be talking about Stephen this morning because I'm in the process of becoming ordained as a deacon, and he, yes, I'm almost done, you guys. I'm almost there. (laughs) Um, And Stephen was one of the first seven deacons and the church's first martyr, and so I'm super excited to be walking in his footsteps as a deacon. The martyr part? I'm not so sure about, Um, although I'm kind of starting to change on that one, and I hope you'll know why by the end of this sermon. So let's go ahead and jump in. Um, In all seriousness, when we read a passage like we heard read this morning by Connie, thank you, Connie, I started crying when you read because so much power, and I loved it. But when we hear a story like this, we can wonder about the martyrs, and we can wonder what what made it possible for them to do that? I think the, the, the martyrs are sort of like superheroes, you know? We want to know where their power comes from and how they got it. And I wonder if maybe that's why, as a culture, we're a little bit obsessed with, like, the origin story of the, the superheroes who loves, like, a good Marvel movie in here. Anybody? Okay, yeah, they're good stuff. Raising your hand. I love it. Um, because... With superheroes, what we want is the origin story that tells us where they came from. And here's how the superhero reader puts it. That puts it. Um, that's actually a critical volume, the superhero reader. Almost all superheroes have an origin story, a bedrock foundation um, that tells the account of the transformative events that set the protagonist apart from ordinary humanity. To read stories about destroyed worlds, murdered parents, genetic mutations, and mysterious power-giving wizards is to realize the degree to which the superhero genre is about transformation, about identity, and about difference. Now, we've been telling an origin story in our series on Acts the last couple of weeks that is also a story about transformation, identity, and difference. And if what Tertullian said is true, that the blood of the martyrs is indeed the seed of the church, then where did the martyrs get their power what is the origin of the, of the martyrs? And I want to make a little bit of a, an odd claim this morning. I want to say that Stephen was not an extraordinary person. He was rather a person extraordinarily submitted to and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We'll quickly move through the three brief movements of his ministry that are so luminous and will witness how the Spirit reveals itself as a spirit of humility, as a spirit of boldness, and of a spirit, as a spirit of truth. Okay, you guys ready? Are you with me? Do you have your Bibles? Okay, we're going to get into it here. Um, we've already heard the climax of Stephen's story told this morning by um, Connie. Spoiler alert, this first part is a little bit boring because it doesn't really seem like the kind of origin story that you would expect, but it's the origin story that Stephen has. We've been talking about this outpost of Christianity, right? This fellowship that Luke has called people who are of one heart and one soul. That's in um, chapter 4. Now we're in Acts 6. We're starting with verse 1. Okay, 
Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven wise men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so they they choose seven men. Stephen is one of them. And they're all full of the Holy Spirit, and the apostles commission them. They put their hands on them, and they pray for them. And then Luke notes that after these men have been appointed, the word of God continues to spread. Okay, so what is happening here? What's causing this communion, this one heart and soul communion, to start bickering, fighting with each other? It's a rift between two groups, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And the Hellenists are saying that their people, specifically their most vulnerable people, their widows, aren't getting enough food. Now remember, this is a church. They've just moved in together, okay? They've pooled all of their goods. And what is happening is that we're starting to have a little bit of a, a scaling problem, if you, were, if you will. There's way more people than there were in the beginning. And so it's a little bit of an administrative crisis But it's not just in an administrative crisis, it's a spiritual crisis and one that the apostles can't ignore. Because if you'll remember, as Father Jordan has been talking to us about this new fledgling church, they are supposed to be a recreation and a replacement for the temple. Because the temple was supposed to be the place where God's abundant life flowed out into the world to care for the downcast, the widow, um, the lonely, those who didn't have resources. And the temple hadn't been doing that. And now this new church is being tested. They are looking, um, they, are, it, they are basically being put in a spot where their response to this crisis will tell us about who they are and what their priorities are. Are they going to be faithful in a way that the temple had not been faithful? Now, some people have read the apostles' solution to this problem as like just kind of a punt. (laughs) And I think in our age of supercharged and sometimes um, corrupt preachers, we're likely to interpret it this way. Sort of like um, the apostles saying, just like, we're way too busy with the important work to serve the widows at the table. I think, humbly, I think that this is an interpretive mistake, and I'll tell you why. Remember, the disciples have had their notion of power completely inverted by spending time with Jesus and seeing what he did with his life and death. Remember, Christ had taught them that in his kingdom, in God's kingdom, the last is first, and whoever wants to be great and whatever is really noble is to be servant of all. Now, these men will soon be murdered because they are preaching those very words. Surely they wouldn't be putting their necks in the noose from some insane and petty sense of self-importance. No, it's not that the apostles don't want to serve. It's that they can't. It would not be right for them to exchange one kind of negligence for another kind of negligence. Okay, the widows had been neglected, but they're saying, we can't now neglect the word in order to help the widows. So, 
Um, and also, if you will think back to the beginning of Acts, they can't forsake to do the one thing, the one thing that Jesus had commanded them to do, which was to be his eyewitnesses. So they find themselves in a bind. They have to obey. They have to proclaim the word, but they cannot let injustice thrive. So they call the seven. And this is where we have a revelation of the spirit as a spirit of humility. I kind of want to call it the spirit of other-oriented existence, of giving yourself because the needs are real, and God wants to use all of us in the coming of his kingdom. I think there's some relief in noticing that Stephen, Stephen, a character, like a guy we've never met before, we meet him first in this passage, he is never spoken about without either a direct reference or an allusion to the Holy Spirit. So that teaches us that this humility, when we look at Stephen, when we look at the seven, we see their humility. It's not something intrinsic to them that they bring to the table, but rather it is a gift of the spirit of Christ. Christ comes and he makes us brothers and sisters. Like him, we become proclaimers of the word. We become companions of the lonely, healers of the sick, and doers of what I can call deeply unpleasant tasks. When I think about this work, I think about Gretchen West, who was here this morning. I got to look at her as I was talking about her, which I think made her uncomfortable, but that's okay. But I think about Gretchen, and I think about her working at uh, Mean Street Ministries at one of our foot clinics, and she's just cheerfully talking away with one of our homeless friends as she washes his feet And she bandages his wounds. She puts ointment on there. She massages his feet. And I think about Heidi Zavala, who's sitting next to her. And she's caring for the feet of a man who's literally lost all of his toes from being on the street. I think about them and I think about the work that they're doing because their minds are full of what it is like to be another person. And that's the spirit's compulsion. It's to give ourselves for another And it's what made a bunch of people from different backgrounds able to live well together in the early church because they thought of themselves not primarily as individuals but one body, baptized into one spirit to bring joyous healing love to Christ, uh, the healing love of Christ to each other and to the world. And so this is a spirit that binds It's a spirit of unity. But as we'll see in the next phase of Stephen's ministry, it's not just a binding spirit. It's also a loosing spirit. And what I mean by that is it is the spirit that has the power to blow apart human institutions, human religious institutions, and propel God's salvation to the ends of the earth. As you'll remember, the Jewish religious establishment, the temple, They were, as you might say, pretty salty about what this new church was doing. And soon Stephen, who had signed himself up for one task, which was serving food to widows, found himself embroiled in controversy, doing very different work, going head-to-head in debates with the religious heavyweights, and eventually dragged before the highest Jewish court in the land. But he did not go in alone, and he did not go in powerless. He had with him the spirit of boldness, which the Spirit of God gave him. In verse 8, 
It says that he was empowered with, he had grace and power so that no one was able to withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. That's in verse 10. Finally, everything comes to a head, and, G- and like Jesus before him, Stephen finds himself playing defendant in a kangaroo court. We're moving here, okay, friends? We're picking up in chapter 6, verse 13, and here's the charge of the witnesses against him, the false witnesses. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. All right, let's take this apart. What are these dudes so worried about? The high priest and the other priests. Twice the phrase is repeated, this place. This place, the temple. The priests are worried it will be disbanded and torn down. They're worried about the law. They're worried about the customs. I.e., they are worried about the instruments of salvation. Now, notice carefully what they think their position to these things is. All of this, the institutional power, the traditions that decide who may be saved and how, they believe it is theirs by right. It belongs to them. Look at this. They say it was given to them by God's chosen prophet, Moses himself. Here's what that means. God chose us. God gave us the law. How dare you say that God means to do away with the law in the temple? How dare you claim Jesus made the law obsolete? How dare you say Jesus is unleashing the spirit of God to make people into temples instead of this place? How dare you extend an invitation to outsiders into this salvation? And my goodness, I wish I had time to fully unpack Stephen's rebuttal here, his speech to them. I wish I'd saved myself the trouble of writing a sermon because his is so much better. Um, And I would encourage you guys to just go and read it this week. It's so powerful. But I will try to summarize what he says. God's salvation does not belong to you. It never did. You ostracized and you rejected and ignored every prophet God sent to tell you the truth. And oh yeah, Moses, who you claim is your forefather, you rejected him too. The only people you can actually count as your ancestors were the Israelites, who received the law, but they threw it away to worship the golden calf. Oh, and that's what you're doing. You've turned the temple into a golden calf too. God, this God you purport to worship, He is not bounded or contained by the temple. Stephen quotes the prophet Isaiah. This is in chapter 7, verse 49. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my place of rest? Did not my hands create all of these things? You see, the person who was apparently on trial, Stephen, is now the one making the indictment. The temple regime, he says, fundamentally misunderstands the basic mechanics of salvation. And this is where our reading from this morning picks up. 
He goes after circumcision. It's a big deal for these people. He says, circumcision, the outward marking of God's people, was only ever meant to be a physical symbol, something temporary, written in flesh. What the Holy Spirit does is he comes and he circumcises our eternal hearts. He writes the law of life on them, and he marks us forever as God's chosen, and he makes us new. And it's not by virtue of some ethnic inheritance or ritual purity by following of laws, but simply because God has chosen to welcome everyone. Whoever is far off, whoever is near, everyone is capable and welcome to receive salvation simply by believing in the name of Jesus Christ. I discovered when I was reading this passage this week a truth, which is that the high priest was afraid. He was afraid because his time was up. He had been a shadow king over a shadow kingdom, and when the real king appeared, he was destined to fade away. But Stephen... Stephen wasn't afraid of anything. He was content to leave the power in God's hand, stretched out now in the Holy Spirit. It had been for Stephen the spirit of humility, as we saw, and the spirit of boldness as he was confronting the powers that be. And now, in Stephen's moment of greatest need, it would be the spirit of truth. Now, of course, The council was not going to let Stephen live after this. He had just been declaring that the temple was spiritually defunct and that Jesus was Lord. And didn't they just kill Jesus for exactly the same thing? And when we look at Stephen, when we see him being killed, we see Jesus again, don't we? We see the Spirit actively at work transforming Stephen into a Christian, a little Christ His life becomes gorgeously Christ-shaped in death as he's begging with God with his last breath not to hold his murderers guilty and in the end, offering his life up to Christ. Now, please, please, in this moment, don't start to think that Stephen mustered through of his own power because he was superhuman. No, he was able to withstand and even glory in his death because of what the Spirit showed him. So let's talk about Stephen's vision. I think we tend to think of visions as sort of uh, abnormal, a break from reality. Sort of somebody is looking off at something that isn't actually there, that isn't actually real. But the vision that Stephen has here is more like a tearing away of a temporal obfuscation, a moment when Stephen could see what was really going on despite what appeared to be happening. When we look at this scene, what do we see? We see the, see the rank miscarriage of, sorry, let me start that over. We see the rank miscarriage of justice. We see power-thirsty men. We see their victim, alone, outcast, dying a terrible death as a heretic. But Stephen's vision shows him a higher and a deeper truth. Here is what, uh, how N.T. Wright describes the scene. It wasn't as if Stephen could see far off up in the sky a small door through which a distant place called heaven might just be visible. But rather, he saw heaven and earth as they were, overlapping spheres, so that 
there was a heavenly court suddenly superimposed on the earthly one. Instead of a high priest and his fellow judges, the ancient of days, the uh, God of glory himself, sits in judgment, and the Son of Man stands before him to act as advocate in court. The human judges might be condemning Stephen to death, but the heavenly court was finding in his favor. In the end, Stephen could endure the pain and the humiliation of death because he knew that Jesus was not dead. He was alive. And he was testifying, always testifying on Stephen's behalf. Do you know? Has the Holy Spirit shown you what he showed Stephen? That Jesus stands ready to advocate for you. Not because of your merit, not because you're good, but by the testimony of Jesus' own blood. If you knew that, really knew that, that you were eternally loved, eternally safe in him, that evil is not the fixed reality, but a broken power that is swept away by a power far greater, the power of the Lord, the giver of life, would you be afraid? I'm begging you, friends. Don't be afraid now to trust that Jesus goes by his spirit, and where he goes, he shatters the bonds of sin and death. In the translation that I read, the ESV, Luke says here, not that Stephen died, but that he fell asleep. It's the same phrase that Paul uses later of believers who died, knowing that death is temporary. Because as surely as God raised Jesus by the power of his spirit, he will raise us too. Pray with me. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, you manifested your love by sending your only begotten Son into the world that all might live through him. Pour out your Spirit on your church, this church, that we may fulfill his command to preach the gospel to all people. Send forth laborers into your harvest. Defend them in all dangers and temptations and hasten the time when the fullness of the Gentiles shall be gathered in and faithful Israel shall be saved. Through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.